you are not a child and not heading downstairs. And that means you are staying in here. And we are in the, in the book of Hebrews. And I am super excited that we are now back in the book of Hebrews. Many of you know we've been in this book for quite some time. We took a little bit of a break as we went into December in the Christmas season, uh, and then we spent a little bit of time in it at the beginning of January, and then we looked at a few di- different just uh, topical issues, and now, uh, for the most part, we're going to be making our way through Hebrews till the end, and so we are in chapter 2, uh, the text is uh, Hebrews 12, or sorry, we're in chapter 12, the text is verses 3 through 12, and um, let me give a little bit of a recap, since it's been a while since we've been in here, just to make sure we're all understanding why this book was written, what is he accomplishing, and where are we at today. Um, so the last time we preached in Hebrews, we were in verses 1 and 2, where um, the author was encouraging the church to keep pressing on in their faith, to keep running the race. And the reason he's doing this is because the church does not want to keep running. Uh, they're struggling in their faith. They've experienced persecution, they've been arrested, their property has been taken from them, they've experienced trials, pains, and suffering. And I'm sure as you know, pain has no boundaries. So pain will begin to move from one area to every area of our life. So very likely, as they're experiencing social persecution and just difficulties within the area, that's also also just causing um, Difficulties in marriages, difficulties with relationships, difficulties with finances. So their whole lives are being turned upside down. They feel beaten. They feel worn out. They're not sure they can continue in their faith. They're tempted to abandon Christianity altogether and go back to Judaism. The reason they'd go back to Judaism is because the Jews were not being persecuted at this time. So that would be safe. So they're probably wrestling with something like, okay, we went to Christianity. We thought Judaism was pointing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but life has gotten really hard. Surely this can't be the case. We ought to go back because that is much safer. And so what the author is doing, has done in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews is he has walked through how the entire Old Testament points to and is fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has shown how um, the entire sacrificial system, the priesthood, how the sacrifices all point to Christ, how Moses has pointed to Christ, how Joshua and leading the Israel through the wilderness has pointed to Christ, how everything that we read, even that mysterious Old Testament king priest Melchizedek, how he points to Christ. And so what he has done is saying, you can't go back to Judaism. To go back to Judaism is to forsake the gospel, is to turn your back on God. It is to have no faith. And so the problem is, though, even though they know this truth, their pain is clouding their judgment. And so the church feels as though it has fallen down, face down, in the mud. It has no desire to continue running the race. And so I just want to ask kind of as, as we begin this, can you relate to that? Like, have you ever felt as this Hebrews church is feeling? Have you ever been in a trial that seemed to attack and undo everything that you are and everything that you've believed? Been there? I mean, right now, the church feels like they're hanging on by a thread, and the slightest breeze would be all that's needed just to send them crashing down to the floor and their entire lives shattered. 
Maybe you're there. Maybe you're there now. Or maybe you know someone in your life right now that this is characteristic of how they feel. And one thing that we've said before is that here on earth, you're either in a trial, going into a trial, or coming out of a trial. Life on earth is characterized by trials. And so you might say, well, that's not very hopeful. That's not comforting. We feel terrible. We feel like we're hanging on by a thread, and everything in life is, circu- is, is revolving around trials. So the author is going to give us hope today. He's going to give us hope that we can press on in our faith. This text that we're looking at today is meant to strengthen and, and encourage us. It's meant to mature us in our faith. It's meant to fortify, fortify our faith. It's meant to put brick and mortar around what we might consider our stick house at the moment. And so here's the main point. The trial you are in right now is guided by the love of your heavenly father for your all for your eternal, all-satisfying good. That's what we're going to see. The trial you are in right now is guided by the love of your heavenly Father for your eternal, all-satisfying good. And so with that, I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. And we're going to read verses 3 through 12 here at Timberline. We stand at the reading of God's word. Because we want to remind ourselves just uh, physically, every week, just by the, the act of standing, that this word comes to us inspired by the Spirit for the purpose of equipping and training us in the gospel. Here we go, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the pleasant fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Let me pray. Father, Father, I just thank you for this text. God, you are drawing us into the mystery of your sovereign rule in this text. And God, you are are guiding us to the truth that, Lord, you are in control of all events good and evil. And Lord, as we come into this text, Lord, I pray that we would hear the truth from your spirit and that our hearts would be encouraged. I pray for anyone who feels like their knees are weak and their legs are shaking, that today they would be strengthened by your gospel. 
And Lord, I pray that this truth in your text will fortify us for not only the trials today, but trials tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day until the point that you return and we see you face to face. So, Father, may you strengthen us. May we lift our voices in praise to you today because of what we learn and see in your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, So we have three uh, main questions that we're going to answer to make our way through the text. Uh, The first one will be by far the shortest, and then we'll spend quite a bit more time in the second two questions. Uh, Number one. How does this text, how do I know this text is meant to encourage me? One thing we have said multiple times here is don't believe things I say to you on this pulpit or anyone else has. Believe what you see in God's word. So don't just believe something because a pastor stands in front of you and says something. You need to see it in the word of God. And so one of the first things I just want to say, if we're going to say this text is meant to encourage us, encourage us let's, let's see it for ourselves. Look at verse 3. The author is calling us to not be weary or faint-hearted. In fact, let me just say this. The passage is bookended with encouragement to press on. Verse 3, it says, do not be weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4, or verse 12, it starts out with the word, therefore. So that word therefore says, so what you've seen in verses 1 through 11 is the evidence, is the truth you need, therefore, to lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The argument he is making is for the purpose that we would run the race. Verse 5 also encourages us, do not be wearied at God's discipline. And then verse 7, we come to the command. This is the primary command of the text in Doer. Do not be weary. That's the, that's the book ends. In the middle, verse 5, do not be weary and therefore endure the discipline that we are experiencing. The response of faith to this text is that we would run the race. So that's what he's calling us to do. That's what he's encouraging the church then and now. So that's question one. That one was the easy one. Question two. Why is the church struggling in their faith? So we're going to give three answers. The two are immediate and obvious. First, the church is struggling because of outside forces placing pressure on them. Back in chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, we were kind of given a glimpse into what this looked like. We're we're understanding that there's these governing authorities that have arrested Christians. They've they've seized the property of these Christians. They've also experienced pressure from the very social culture that they're in. In chapter 10, verse 33, we read that they have been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, meaning they've been slandered. Their character has been defamed. So there's these opposition coming from outside. These sinful forces, this evil that's oppressing them, that's attacking them, that the goal is to destroy the church. That's answer number one. The second reason the church is struggling in their faith, we come in verse four and we see it's because of their own sin. We read, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So the sin is tempting the church to fall away from the faith. That's what's happening. So we have this outside pressure characterized by sin that's pressuring and wanting to destroy the church. Their sin within them 
is saying, man, all I want to do is run from this. I want to do everything I can to not feel this way anyway. And if that means abandoning Christianity, I will do that. And so they have this sin that's within them that they're wrestling with too. Um, These are two obvious answers. And this is where normally you and I will stop. There's something from the outside happening. Often we'll just blame that. Oftentimes with introspection and and with the Christian community, they'll point to things even within us on why we're wrestling. But there's another reason, and it's the more ultimate answer that the author gives. This entire passage is wanting us to see that God is the one who reigns supreme over our circumstances and using them for our good. The author helps us to see this by referring to all the trials, all the pains, all the sufferings, all the difficulties this church is going through by the words, the discipline of God. That's how he's referring to it here. The clear argument in our text is that all the trials that they are experiencing are ultimately God's discipline upon them. Now, if we're familiar with the Bible, this doesn't entirely surprise us Let me just give you two examples of how we see this in other parts of Scripture. The story of Joseph. It's kind of a it's an easy example in a sense. It's one that stands out. At the end of at the end of the book of Genesis, we come across this character, Joseph. Joseph at this time has ten brothers, and none of them like him. And so one day these brothers get together and say, What are we gonna do with him? Let's get rid of him. So they beat him up, throw him in a hole, and then when slave traders come by, they say, We could make money off of this. Let's sell him. So out of this evil deed, they sell him. Joseph eventually goes to Egypt, where through multiple circumstances, he will end up in jail, sitting there for a long period of time. Surely at some point he's wrestling, what is going on here? And yet at the end of the book, we see that now Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt, and he was placed in this position so that he would bring Israel, the people of God, into Egypt where they would be saved from a massive famine that threatened many of the nations at that time. At the very end of the book, when the brothers come around Joseph because their father has died, and they're going, man, this does not look good for us now. Surely Joseph will take out his anger on us. This is what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we see how God stands ultimately behind the good and the evil, all surrounding Joseph's life for the purpose of the redeeming of God's people. Second one, the crucifixion of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, Peter will stand up before a crowd of people, and he will preach the gospel. And this is what he says in chapter 2, verse 23. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here's the question. Why was Jesus crucified? Or who crucified Jesus? Now the obvious answer, and the answer where we would quickly go to, well, the Romans and the Jews obviously crucified Jesus. They're the ones who handed him over. They're the ones who put the nails through him. They stand behind it all. And that is a very real answer. But there's a more ultimate answer. And what we see is that it was God's 
definite plan. That from even before creation, the purpose of God was that eventually he would have a people who would worship him through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So all throughout God's word, we see God is in control of all events at all times. So what that means is that whatever we're going through, it's not random. It's not simply bad luck. There is a purpose and a design behind every trial, every event, every moment in our life. And we'll look at that more in a moment. But let me give one more example that I think just helps us begin to understand the supreme providence of our God. So this is from Matthew. Matthew 10, 29 to 31. And it says this, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So John Piper has, has recently written a book um, on God's providence. It's about 600-something, maybe 700. It's big. It's like this thick. Um, but it is absolutely amazing. And w- this is a quote that he gives in regards to that text. He says, This reasoning that we have in this text is useless if it has nothing to do, if it, if it has only to do with God's awareness of birds and disciples ra- uh, and rather than his control, as if Jesus were only saying, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's awareness. It is not encouraging to hear the news, God watches all the birds die, so he will watch you die. No, that's not the point. The point is, apart from your father, that is, without the knowledge and consent of your father, no bird falls. God is all, God's all-governing will is the point. Not just his all-knowing awareness. God's knowledge is of little help to the fearing Christians if God does not also govern both dying birds and endangered disciples. That's an amazing truth that we need to see and know. And we know this truth this morning. We need to know this truth, that God sovereignly rules over every aspect of creation for the good of his people. That includes the trials you are in right now. He supremely rules over every good and every evil event that we experience. I mean, one quick verse, 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You hear that? So often we can read through biblical texts and we just kind of ignore certain truths and we gravitate towards other ones. But all throughout God's word, we're seeing that God supremely reigns over every single act, good and evil. And there is mystery in that. We don't have time to kind of press into all of that today. But listen listen to Job. The book of Job, many of you are familiar with that. Job In the beginning of the book, we see that he loses everything. He loses his family, his possessions, and his health. The only thing he has left is a wife that is nagging him to curse God. That's all that's left. And this is how he responds. Chapter 2, verse 9. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Do you notice who he attributes both things to? Can God not give us good things? Can God not also somehow mysteriously stand behind evil things. 
And then if we, if we go to the end of the book, this is, how, this is what we read. This is after uh, Job has now experienced the rewards of God. He's been blessed by God. It will say this. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and, and courted him for all uh, the evils or encouraged him for all the evils that the Lord had brought upon him. So here at the, begin, at the end of the book, the one who, who's written this book is commentating on it and saying they're all coming and they all acknowledge that all the things that have happened ultimately come from God. So this is what one theologian said. Is it more comforting to think that the power of life and death are ultimately in the hands of the one who hates us rather than the one who loves us? Is it more comforting to think that there is no guide and ruler at all, neither for mercy nor misery, but that the events of nature are random, meaningless, without design or purpose, and not even God can turn the course of things for the good of his children? We're left with two different views. Do we want to believe that there is a God who reigns supreme over all things, and there's mystery there? And let us never, ever forget there is mystery. Or we just say, well, I don't know, maybe God's limited. Maybe he's not as all-powerful as he thinks. Maybe his knowledge is not as all-encompassing as we might think it is. Listen, there is mystery over God's will, but the truth that the Bible continues to press us with, and what we see here in this word is that God is ultimately the one who stands behind, rules over every event in our life, and that is what brings us comfort and encouragement. And so with that... We're going to say, so how does the author encourage the church? So now we're moving into the third question. And so we're going to look at three ways that the fact that God stands supreme over all things that come into our life is meant to encourage us. So number one, be encouraged. God lovingly disciplines you because you are his child. That's the big truth in verses five through nine. We are God's children. When we believe in Jesus, the Bible says we are adopted into God's family. Romans 8, 17 says we become co-heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, 7, Paul writes, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. And the church has forgotten this truth. We see, verse 5, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Do you ever forget that? You forget that you're a child of God? If we cease to remember that we are children of God, then when we experience God's discipline, we'll either think God has forgotten us, forsaken us, or failed us. If we don't understand, we are his child, saved by grace, adopted into his eternal family. So the first thing we must realize is by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we are children of God. I want you to know that. The author wants us to know it. The biblical text wants you to know that if you've believed in Jesus, then your identity is in Christ. You are a child of God. You are loved by God. By grace, you share in his very nature. His wrath has been fully and absolutely swallowed up at the cross. According to Hebrews 10, 17, we read this, I don't know, months ago now. God has promised that he will no longer remember your sins you are forgiven. You are clothed with the righteousness of God. That's what he wants us to see. Because when we realize this truth, we know that God's discipline is a sign of sonship. 
In fact, that's, that's the logic that we have. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 7, God is treating you as sons. Verse 8, illegitimate children are not disciplined. So here's the logic. If you're disciplined by God, then you are a child of God. If you are not, you're illegitimate. Discipline, then, is a sign of God's love. We know this to be true. This is why we discipline our kids, right? As a parent, we discipline them out of love. We do so because we love them. We care how they act. We care how they turn out. We care how they live in society. We're wanting to train them up, hopefully in a way that they will glorify God, they will love others, they will carry the banner of Christ with them wherever they go. So we train them up. We discipline them. So they live a certain way, and we do that out of love. But listen, we don't discipline other people's kids, do we? We want to. <laughs> like, have you ever just like, oh, if you were my kid, oh, man, that so would not happen. I really want to discipline other people's kids at times. My wife is like, that's no, no. I'm not their father. They're not my child. I'm not their authority. But as parents, we've been given that authority over our children's life for the purpose of raising them up in a way that they will ultimately represent God. And so what this means is that God discipline in our life is his love for us. That the pains, the trials, and the sufferings that we experience is not the absence of God's love, but the presence of God's love in your life. And so many people will forget that when the discipline comes. We go, where's God? Surely he doesn't love me. Maybe I've done too much and, he, and he's forsaken me. But rather, we need to remember that the pain, the trial, and the suffering we experience is not the absence of God's love, but is the presence of his love in our life. His discipline in your life and my life is often the very means in which he's accomplishing his purposes for us. Just as we don't often recognize our parents' discipline as an act of love, you remember that? Kids, you're like, you're like there already. You're like, yeah, I don't, I don't see that half the time. But remember when we go back and we're thinking, yeah, when my parents did this or did that, it never felt loving. But now as we look back, do you not see it? I'm like, oh, my parents just spanked me all so much more. We often don't recognize it at the moment. So the first thing we must remind ourselves by God's grace is that we are his children. Now, if we forget that, we'll at least fall into one of two temptations. Temptation number one, um, we fail to think about God's discipline. And we see that. Look at verse five. Do not regard the discipline, uh, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. This is when something comes in our path and we just press through. We're going to get through as fast as we can to the other side. We just want to be done. We suck it up. We push through. This is like my default. No problem, you know, just go. And I can just kind of get into that mode where I will just keep pushing and trudging through. Now, I'm not saying we ought to be praying for trials to last as long as they can. But so often, all we think about is just if I can get to the other side. But listen, if God is our perfect father, 
who's disciplining us for our good, then he's seeking to accomplish something through these trials in our very life. This means we need to think. We need to ask questions. What is God doing? What is God revealing? Is there sin in my life? What's he wanting me to see? What's he preparing me for? Uh, One commentator, he described that there's multiple kinds of discipline. Is this corrective discipline? Is my current circumstance the result of my own sin? Like when David killed Uriah and took Bathsheba and then suffered the consequences. There are consequences for our sins, so sometimes it might just be corrective discipline. Is it educational discipline? Is God preparing me now for something later? Remember Moses, before he went 40 years in the wilderness with God's people, what did he do? He went 40 years in the wilderness with sheep. Preparation. How do you shepherd a people that want to go and do their own thing all the time? Is this preventative discipline? Is God protecting me from something? As parents, we know this. We place curfews and boundaries around our children, not because we hate them, because we love them. There's fullest of life within the boundaries. And so we'll place things around them, like don't touch the fruit of the tree of good and evil. We give these commands for their good. Now, I would say this. Um, While it's good to kind of think through the different types of discipline, I don't think they're ever just one. God's corrective discipline is also going to be educational and preparing us for things in the future. God's educational one will also be preventative. So there's going to be a mixture of them. So I wouldn't get too, like, pigeonholed, like, which one is it? Like, I have to figure it out. But it is good to think, like, why am I in the circumstance that I'm in? What is God doing? What is he revealing? Is there sin in me? Is he, just, is he preparing me? And it might be yes to all of that. But if we simply push through a trial, then we're failing to remember God is our perfect father who's molding us, transforming us, shaping us into the very image of his son right now. And so one thing we need if we're going to think deeply about God's discipline, we need to be in prayer. We need to be talking with God. We need our Bibles open because only when our Bibles are open will we remember who God is and how he does work in the lives of his people. And number three, we need community because I'm so blinded to certain things. I need you to help me see what God might be doing in my life. I need you to press in on me because I might just want to push through and not think at all about it. Temptation number two. So number one, we just want to get through fast as we can. Temptation number two, we're completely overwhelmed by God's discipline. I think that's where the church is here. Verse five, it says, nor be weary when reproved by him. Or we also read in verse four, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you ever been the one who's over-exaggerated your trials and pains? We think that we're going through something far more difficult than anyone else can ever possibly understand. And when we, when we do that, we fall into the lie that God's grace is not sufficient to help us and we are alone. Have you ever done that? Have you said those words? You, you don't understand. No, you, you don't know what I'm going through. I remember when I was a, a pastor in Michigan, I took over the church that was there and, and I would be talking with some of their pastors in the area and rustling through. These are the things I'm experiencing and I expected them 
to every time just be like, wow, that's incredible. I've never heard of such a thing. That's, that's crazy. But you know what they all said? Every single one of them. Oh, yeah. Been there. I, I was so upset. <laughs> like in my head. No, you haven't. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's exactly where my head went. Because we can insulate ourselves that way. I don't have to take your wisdom because you don't know. And there's a pride that also falls into this. Obviously, I'm going through something so much harder because I've actually been equipped and stronger than everyone else. Do you see how the pride comes into it so quick? So verse 4, the author is coming to the church. You haven't died yet. That's basically what he's saying. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And this comes on the tales of chapter 11. We're at the end of chapter 11. He's like, do you remember those guys who were sawn in two? Who were stabbed with a sword? Who were stoned to death with rocks? So he's like, don't, don't overplay the trials in your life. It could be a lot worse. And if you're still struggling to wrap your mind around the truth that God would bring difficult trials upon his children then I refer you just to all of verse 3, where it says, Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. What we know is that Jesus comes to earth. He's the perfect son of God whom the Father infinitely delights in. And Jesus comes with the purpose of suffering on a cross to the point of death so you and I could be saved. In fact, in Hebrews 2, verse 10, it says, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. So just like, we don't forget, Jesus, son of God, all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was through suffering Jesus was qualified to be our savior, and it's through suffering God prepares us for the eternal weight of glory that he has prepared for us. That's number one. Be encouraged because we are children of God. And everything he's doing is for our good. As a perfect father. Number two. Be encouraged. God's wisdom and purposes are infinitely greater than our earthly fathers. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, besides this. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. So here, the author is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. If we respect our earthly parents who disciplined us, then how much more? more ought we to respect and submit to God's perfect discipline. I mean, think about it. We discipline our kids for what? 18 years, give or take? Um, short period of time. And, and, we don't, and we do this out of finite, fallible wisdom, right? We're limited in our scope. We're limited in our knowledge. I mean, sometimes, I don't know about you, but we, we don't do the right thing, right, parents? Like, you tracking? Like, sometimes we're too harsh. Sometimes we're too soft. I'm not too soft. 
I, I would verge on this. My wife would verge on this. Sometimes we don't discipline. Like we missed it. I hate those moments. Oh. I mean, we do the best we can, but we are absolutely far from perfect. But as children, even though our, but, I, but as children, even though our parents discipline us imperfectly, we submit to them, right? We know, and I know we could like go to extremes here and say, well, I didn't have a good dad, but I'm just for the large general swath, we're just saying it. Parents try to discipline for good. They try to. But they don't always do it well. They mess up. They're too soft. They're too hard. They miss too many things. But we, we, many of us, most of us, we go, I think they were actually trying to love us. But God is not fallible or finite. His wisdom is perfect and pure. He knows all things. He knows you and I better than we know ourselves. Do you know that? I mean, we're told in Psalm 139, he's the one who knit us together in our mother's womb, and he's the one who wrote all of our days before there was yet one. He knows every action that we ever take, and every action he takes towards us is good and perfect and righteous and supremely wise. This is what one, one theologian said this. I can't even really say his last name, Theodore Leitch. We'll just go with that. It says, his plans concerning his people are always thoughts of good, of blessing. Even if he's obliged to use the rod, it is not the rod of wrath, but the rod of chastisement for their temporal and eternal welfare. There is not a single item of evil in his plans for his people, neither in their motive, nor in their conception, nor in their revelation, nor in their consummation. Everything God does for his children, whether they are with the rod or without the rod, it's for the good of his children. That we would know him, that we would love him, that we would cherish him. We might not always see or understand the good that God is doing in our life. And I think, I think we, can, we can all embrace, I have no idea sometimes what God is doing. Joseph sitting in jail for many, many years, I have no idea what God is doing at this moment. I'm sure he wrestled with those thoughts. But the truth of scripture is that God loves his children and we can always come back to, I don't know what God is doing. I might not know the specifics, but I do know the big plan, that everything he does is for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, 28. Okay, so this is gonna bring us to then our final point. Be encouraged because God's discipline is for our eternal, our all-satisfying good. So he treats us as children. Everything he does is perfect for us, and it has a goal. And the goal is our all-eternal, satisfying good. In verse 10, the author says, God disciplines us for, for our good. And then he explains it. He doesn't just leave us so it's like, what, what's good? So he explains it, that we may share his holiness the word share his holiness refers to being made like Jesus. So God is holy. means he's perfectly and absolutely devoted to himself, which a supreme, all-powerful, infinitely pure God ought to be devoted to himself. It would be weird if he was devoted to make your name great, right? Like that would be weird for the all-infinite, powerful creator to say, I really treasure this guy above me. So it makes sense that he's going to make his name known. And then when we are saved and made holy, 
and he's, that we would share in his holiness, that we would be fully devoted to God, that we would desire him, that we would love him, that we would treasure him above everything else. And so God, what we see is bringing things into our life for the purpose of preparing us to see and behold his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He's doing it for our good. In fact, verse 14, we read that without this holiness, no one sees God. So that's got to make you pause and go, wait a minute. Only by obtaining this holiness will we be with Christ forever. How do we obtain it? Well, it's all by God's grace, but it's through the discipline of God. This means God's discipline, the, the discipline we experience here on earth is God's grace that we'd continually be transformed. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18, degree by degree by degree by degree by degree by degree into the very glory of God himself. It's a means of preparation. Through discipline, God's teaching us to trust in him alone. Our strength, our finances, our resources, our relationships are not enough to satisfy us. They're good, by all means, as Christians, we don't ever want to be down on things of the earth. They're good things on earth. It's good to have technology. It's good to have relationships. There's a lot of things that bring us joy, but none of that joy is all satisfying and ultimate, but it all is meant to lead us to the one who gives us perfect and all satisfying joy because everything on earth will eventually fail. And through trials, God's teaching us that he alone is worthy of worship. Uh, listen to what J.C. Ryle says, Puritan. He says this, By affliction, he teaches us many precious lessons, which without it, we should never learn. By affliction, he shows us our emptiness and weakness, draws us to the throne of grace, purifies our affections, weans us from the world, makes us long for heaven. In the resurrection morning, we shall all say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. We shall thank God for every storm on that day. Now, this doesn't mean our pain is to be trivialized now. In fact, I love verse 11. For the moment, all discipline is painful. Like, that's real, right? Like, we experience difficulties, loss, death, suffering, physical hardship, emotional hardship, health. I mean, there are things that are Painful. The Bible doesn't minimize that at all. The entire book of Psalm, you have psalmists crying out, where are you, God? I need you to act. If you don't act, I will die. So all throughout the psalms, we have biblical authors writing out to God about their pain, asking for his comfort. Your pain is real, but we remember that the pain is not without purpose and design. Rather, it's producing what verse 11 says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God is creating a harvest in your life right now. And this is where it is so important that we're in community with one another, that we speak to one another, that we encourage one another. This is why back in chapter 10, he said, do not forsake the gathering of the church. Because if you forsake the gathering of the church and the dark storms come over you, you might forget that you're a child. You might forget that God's perfect wisdom is coming upon you through discipline right now, and you'll think he's abandoned you, failed you, forsaken you, and forgotten you. So we need to be with community. We need to come back and remember God's word. Remember, they forgot they were children. Where do we read that we are God's children? In God's word. 
So when we forsake the teachings of Scripture, we will wrestle and we will struggle in the trials all the more. Listen to how the book of Job ends. This is Job 42 and a few verses kind of scattered around. It says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. When we experience, we will experience joy in this life through God's discipline. There are things. I think we see Job as a picture. He experienced good things through the result of discipline. We will experience goodness and joy and glory here on earth. But ultimately, I think what Job's pointing us to is the far greater eternal weight of glory that awaits us when our Savior returns and we will live with him for all of eternity. God's discipline will do one of two things in us. It will either distract our focus from Christ, ultimately revealing that our faith was never in Christ. We will slow down and one day stop running the race altogether. Or God's discipline and his supreme wisdom will intensify our focus on Christ so that we run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I just wonder, how will you respond? How are you responding to the very things that are happening in your life? To go back to the main point, the trial you are in right now is guided by the love of your heavenly Father for your all-satisfying good. How exactly? We might not totally know. Maybe in time we will. Definitely when Christ returns, we'll be given a much greater view. So real quick, basically all I've done is address what God's word says to his church regarding discipline. So I just want to take a moment and just say, like, what if you're an unbeliever here? What if you're saying, but, but I'm not a child. <laughs> and the things I'm going through right now are really hard and really terrible. What hope is there for me? How do you respond? Just as the trials for the believer is grace, I would say they're grace also. And they're meant to awaken you to a much greater reality. Think of it like, like a thorn that you step on. As you step on that thorn, it heightens your awareness of everything else. And that's what the trial does. It heightens us so that we all of a sudden we become aware of the way we're thinking about this world. And we realize there has to be more. Surely this is not all random. Surely this is not all chaotic. Surely not everything that comes my way is simply the roll of the dice. C.S. Lewis, many of you know this one, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's the megaphone to arouse a deaf world. If you're an unbeliever here, then I would take God's grace as a means of awakening you to the world that you are in, that you would see that there is a God in this world. And ultimately, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so we could be forgiven of our sins and have everlasting life. Ultimately, that we will share in his perfect peace, his perfect holiness, and his perfect joy, never to experience pain and suffering again after he returns.
So look at them both, Grace. If you're a believer here, trials are grace because it's God's discipline treating you like a child that you would grow in your likeness to Christ. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to believe in God, that these truths might be very true of you as well and that you'll experience his grace on a day-to-day basis. I'm gonna pray. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take communion afterwards. And the ushers will come and they'll dismiss you row by row to come and take communion. And then you'll go back to your chairs. Well, then collectively, we'll take it all together. So let me pray. Our Father. Father, this is, this is deep. Knowing that you're our Father, knowing that you're behind every event, good and evil, And yet there's so much comfort and encouragement there because, God, you use it for our good. That, Lord, there would be nothing, nor sword, nor death, nor life, nor pain, nor difficulty, nor suffering that would ever separate us from you. And so, God, we take joy in that. We boast in you because of your control, because of your rule, because of your power, because of your presence, because of your providence. And Lord, I pray that as we've listened to this and there's mystery and there's doubts and there's things that we wrestle with and there's uncertainties on how this actually works out in every single circumstance, I pray that we just submit those doubts to you. And Lord, we come back just to the clarity that we have in Scripture. And Lord, I just ask that your Spirit would continue to give us wisdom, continue to give us grace, meet us where we're at today. Strengthen us today that we would know that, Lord, you are using all things for our good, that we would share in your holiness and spend all of eternity with you forever. And God, we thank you for the cross. Lord, I thank you that we can take communion right now, which is the celebration of what your son has done for us and is the only means in which we can become children of God. So, Lord, bless this time now as we take of the bread and the juice, representing the death of your son, Jesus Christ, at the cross, who paid the price for our sins. In your name, Jesus, amen.